The Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, SNAP, is among the oldest enduring federal programs. Now the Agriculture Department has found a way to help recipients eat well, even if they live in what's known as a food desert. No access to supermarkets or high-quality food. For their work in bringing SNAP to online food buying, my next guests are finalists in this year's Service to America Medals program. Lisa Gifaldi is Senior Technical Advisor to the SNAP program. Ms. Gifaldi, good to have you on. Thank you. Great to be here. And Shelley Pierce is Director of the SNAP Policy and Innovation Division. Ms. Pierce, good to have you with us. Yes, thank you for having us. All right. First of all, a little bit of background here. SNAP program, traditionally people would go to a food retailer and exchange the benefits on that little card for properly vetted and the correct things they can buy under the SNAP program. How extensive are food deserts in the country as you define them? Shelley? Sure. I don't know that there's a whole lot of hard data on that. I think that it varies a lot based on individual people's circumstances. What we might not inherently think of as a food desert could very much be so for someone who lacks transportation or who perhaps works during the time when the stores around them do happen to be open. It varies, I think, with this population based on what folks would normally think of as a typical food desert. Sure. And so let's get right to it. To enable SNAP to get to online buying of food, and there's no shortage of places there, and pretty much everybody has that access through a phone. Uh, Lisa, tell us what some of the technologies and technical approaches were required to even see if this was feasible. Retailers needed to have a website, an e-commerce platform, as well as we needed to find a company that was able to provide a pin pad solution. Since at brick and mortar stores, SNAP recipients have to input a four digit pin in order to make a purchase. So we had to find a company to help us create and develop that and to integrate it into a retailer's website, as well as the state agencies We needed their support in order to update their EBT systems in order to accept those transactions as well. Yeah, and anyone who's ever programmed anything knows that that is not a trivial lift to get that PIN system and so forth end-to-end there. Was there any resistance from state programs that might have realized that the purchases with their dollars, state dollars, would not necessarily go to in-state merchants anymore? Shelley? We actually have long had in the law that governs SNAP a requirement for SNAP benefits to be able to be used across state lines. So that's something that they're well used to. But I will say that early on, prior to the pandemic, there were several states that were maybe not as comfortable with the use of benefits online. And certainly nobody wants to be the guinea pig or first out of the gate. They kind of wanted to step back and you know let the others go first and see how it goes. And what demand signals did you get from recipients and people using the SNAP program or from anybody else that this might be a good alternative? Because it seems really obvious in retrospect, but yet nobody thought of it till now. At the beginning, I think that recipients were unsure. Obviously, you know, we were just getting into, in general, in the commercial world, you know, having e-commerce. So now to get groceries... You know, that was something relatively new. And then the pandemic hit, and that's when it spread like wildfire, and everyone wanted to have that ability to shop online. Right. Literally, the whole nation wanted to shop online at that point. Yes. 
And so what did it take? I mean, did you hire a contractor to do this? What were some of the steps? Give us just a brief story of how you got four-digit PIN capability into the cards, into the retailers online, because dealing with some of those companies is like dealing with the planet Mars. It's very hard to find out who do you even call to ask about this capability. Looking into the technology aspect of it is something that had been going on for several years. We certainly did most of the coordination on this, by and large, was handled by our team at FNS. So it was a very big task. And especially before the pandemic, we did run into several fits and starts with this because, as you said, you know, you're working with many, many stakeholders, many large companies that have shifting and different priorities. Some of the partners we were working with had their companies sold or merged as we were working through. And then what had been a priority maybe wasn't somebody else's. So there was a lot of a lot of handholding and a lot of convincing and, you know, pulling some people along. We're speaking with Shelley Pierce. She's director of the Policy and Innovation Division of the Agriculture Department's SNAP program. And Lisa Jafaldi, a senior technical advisor there. So who were the first guinea pigs that said, okay, we'll put a four-digit pin on our site, et cetera? You know, just to provide some background, in 2017, we published a request for volunteers, and that was directed towards retailers. So a bunch of retailers provided proposals, and we selected Amazon, Walmart, ShopRite, Wakefern, and Wright's Supermarket, located in Alabama. So obviously you have the bigger companies, Amazon, Walmart, and then you have some medium-sized supermarkets, which is Wakefern, and then you have a small retailer, which is Wright's, located in Alabama. So that was going through. And then at the same time, we had to sort of beg states to volunteer themselves. So New York was the first state to raise their hand and support this initiative. At that point, we worked with their EBT host processor as well as a company who provided the pin pad. And it was probably a two-year process to get this up and running. And in April of 2019, we processed the first transactions with Amazon, Walmart, and ShopRite, and rights came on a few months later. And how is it working? What's the take-up? Give us a sense of the metrics here to know that this is a program that's being accepted. Shelley? So after the first five or so initial states went online, they stood up around early April was the last one of 2020. So then, of course, you know, COVID hit and we expanded to an additional 40 plus states by that fall, as well as adding many additional retailers. Right now, we have about 4 million households that shop online nationwide each month. You know, and those households may make multiple purchases. We have a little over 200 retailer banners, as we call them. I mean, for context, Walmart would be one of those. And we have about uh, 9% of the overall SNAP benefits that are redeemed each month are redeemed online. So that makes them our third highest redeeming type of store behind supermarkets and superstores. Interesting. So it really wasn't necessarily a great loss for the local mom and pop type of store, the highs or the, you know, these kinds of, some of them are still independently owned. It sounds like most of the business anyway was to the larger end of the retail chain. They typically did redeem more in benefits, but I will say a lot of the retailers that we've brought on, especially over the last year or so, 
are what you would consider as smaller retailers, like many single-owned operations, um, one or two stores and things like that. And just a technical question, Lisa, besides the PIN, which was a technical capability, it's like establishing the 988 number nationwide. Easy to say, takes years of work to do. Of course, the rules that go with the redeeming of SNAP benefits, you can't buy beer and cigarettes, et cetera, et cetera. How does that get programmed in? That must have been quite a challenge to make sure that only the proper items could get through the system that way. Yeah, there's some rules that are requirements that the retailers had to implement on their websites. And it was a little bit difficult at first because we were working with the really techie people who didn't understand the requirements behind SNAP because they didn't work in that area in the brick and mortar world. They were just setting up a website. So, you know, one of the rules obviously is that SNAP recipients can only purchase SNAP eligible foods. And What we had to do is do a lot of testing. You know, the retailers had to provide us with business requirement documents that laid out how they were going to implement all of those requirements that we established in the request for volunteers. And then they did their their website build. And then when they were ready to have us look at it, we did intensive testing. And then they were able to go live at that point. And does a SNAP card, by the way, work like a debit card. Once it's empty, it's empty, and then the number will show this banking system that it's out of money. Correct. And so that was the other thing, too. We had to ensure that the transaction response codes made sense to the recipients because in the credit and debit world, if your card doesn't work, you know, usually the response is, go talk to your bank. (laughs) Uh, We don't have a bank here. Uh, So we had to ensure that those responses made sense if they had insufficient funds, if they had a bad PIN and things like that. And so where do we go from here now that you've got this really good base of operation, millions of people using it, billions of dollars, I guess even 9% of SNAP is a lot of money. What's next for the program? Well, in terms of online, you know, we continue to look for ways to help some of the smaller retailers in more rural areas move towards being able to update their websites, you know, if they're able to support, whether it's delivery or pickup. We're also kind of looking to the what's next of the program. So we've just started the early stages of implementing pilots for mobile payments. So where you could add your SNAP card to your mobile wallet and use it in store that way. Well, it sounds really cool. Shelly Pierce is director of the Policy and Innovation Division of the Agriculture Department's SNAP program. Thanks so much for joining me. Well, thank you for having us. Lisa Gifaldi is senior technical advisor. Thank you so much. Thank you. And along with Andrea Gold O'Connor, they are finalists in this year's Service to America Medals program. We'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a um, 
uh, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did. As a matter of fact, as I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in, and she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were literate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, We have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm 
about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations. But you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And, you know, I flirted with a couple of them. And I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me. I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released, and that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sisulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness toward the society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story. And it, you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to, to go as far as you have, and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. 
you want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way, that's sort of the I way that I kind brilliant. of see all of that. You that's know? <laughs> and um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, today. thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.